102, as we continue to deal with uh, the power of our God, the power of God is one of His attributes, and we're dealing with the aspect of infinite, Him being infinite and eternal. And we described what, what, what is infinity, what does it mean that He is infinite? Well, it means that there's no limit on Him. There's nothing that can limit Him uh, outside of His own nature. So, what, when we're talking about Him being infinite, uh, these are usually adverbs that are added to some aspect of God, the omnis and the ims. Um, so, His eternality is, all, is something specific, but uh, we talk about Him being omnipresent, omnipotent, uh, immortal, uh, 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 immutable. Uh, these are terms, these are the things that negate any kind of limitation on those. So uh, there is the idea of him being infinite is just, some, is just that term that we're going to add to those aspects of God. Now, when we talk about him being eternal, uh, various words in the scriptures, um, Psalm 93 really brought that out. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And his eternality has to do with time. He's eternal. But there's no limit he has to time. <laughs> yeah, she forgot today. She thought it was Sunday. She thought it was Saturday. <laughs> Why? Because she's not eternal. <laughs> and therefore is prone to the limitations you and I existing in time have. But he is Lord of time. He's Lord over time. And we talked about this idea, and I'm going to draw a little box again. Uh, connect the... Anytime you have a reason to, to speak of God being, we call this box time. And he is not in time. He is above time. He's not in the box as to his very nature, there's nothing, that which is in the box is limited by the box itself, but he's above it. But we also talked about incarnationally, in the incarnation, he entered time. So that is where we left off, that God in a sense relates to us in time. And this is going to cause some to balk a little bit. But we understand it incarnationally. No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son has declared Him, and that's been so since the beginning. God has been making Himself known. He's been relating to us. He has been relating to us as Lord and as he relates to us, 
He relates to us in time. Does that make sense? So, there was a time where I did not believe upon Christ and I was not saved. Uh, Ephesians chapter uh, 2, at that time you were without Christ. That was so of each and every one of you. Uh, and the time has come that He has granted you repentance and He has given you forgiveness of sins through the blood, shed blood of Jesus Christ and you are now His child and now call Him Abba Father and you are now entered into His promises. You have a changed relationship with Him. All right? So... That is our experience of God is a changing one, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see, <laughs> right? So what we have a changing relationship with God, with the unchanging God. How does that work? Changing relationship with the unchanging God. That's, that's the, the aspect that you and I need to deal with today. Let us again read here in Psalm 102. Um, in regards here, he says, verse 24, I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. The years, thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of thy hands, they shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy ears shall have no end. Here we have both aspects being taught. Here we have him being above time, always being there, being the same. And yet, we have him enduring from generation to generation. We have him uh, before, during, and after. There's the time that now is and the time that will be. There is a t there, the, this, the clock's winding down and he is working in that time. There is a changing relationship that we have with the unchanging God. So in our experience, God is in time. God is working. God is dealing with us. So what does this have to do, or how can we speak meaningfully of Him being, well, this goes back to that infinite, the infinite power of God in His immutability. I think I spelled it right. It's got that M, so we're talking about an infinite power He has not to change. Mutation, you get the word mutation out of that. He's not mutable. He's not changing. He does, he's, he's not like you and me. I once was young and now I'm old. <laughs> Uh, I change. Uh, I learn, I grow, I, I got stronger, now I'm getting weaker, uh, things of that nature. I change. God doesn't. He's not smarter now than he was yesterday. 
He's not more powerful than he was yesterday. He's the same. All right, so God's unchangeability. We've got to talk about his immutability in his relationship to time. Does God change? In my experience, it does seem like it. I was once under his wrath. Now I'm under his grace. Now, how do we speak about that meaningfully? Now, let, let us, let us uh, and we're, I'm using loosely some of John Frame's notes here, and um, we'll get more, more into this. But, um, but we know that he does speak about his unchangeability. John, James chapter 1, it says, In him is no variableness. What does that mean? No changes. Neither shadow of turning. He's not going from one side to another. He's not shifting from one state to another. He is God. And uh, Malachi, uh, I am the Lord, I change not. That becomes a ground for us to trust. The scriptures speak about this as his immutability. But let me ask you this. As we draw closer to our experience of God in time, in the box, you and I are in the box, we experience him in the box, he, he incarnated into the box, uh, he made himself known in the box, in time that is, in the fullness of time, the Son of God came. Does God ever change? Now we have what the scriptures say, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. That's what uh, uh, Balaam learned, right? In Numbers 23. Now, what do we do with certain passages, though? All right, broadly. Let's go back to this idea of grace. Genesis 2.17 says, The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. They ate. God came. Now, I know spiritual death, setting aside the idea of spiritual death, did final, complete death get laid upon them? Now, they spiritually died. They were separated from God. But did the second death lay upon them? <laughs> Are they eternally separated from God according to the fullness of the promise? No, there's grace. Did God change his mind? No, he had grace. So what do we do with that idea? Take, for instance, Exodus chapter 32, 9 and 10, where we have Moses pleading for God's people. And God says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I might consume them in my wrath. And here, Moses pled with God, and God relented. Okay, here, God seems to change his mind. How do we take that? Or we have another instance. In 1 Samuel 15, where Saul had sinned rebelliously against God after God had raised him up as a king, and in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, it says, 
that God repented that he had made Saul king. God changed his mind. Now, how, now just, that, just as a cursory question, how do you deal with that? How does that jive with our understanding that God is unchanging? Well, we do it because we have changing relationships with the unchanging God. All right? It's, it's our relationship that has changed. And we have to understand contextually each and every one of these. Now, he regretted, that's the idea there in 1 Samuel, he regretted that he had made king. Does that have this idea that he was sorry that he had made man? We remember in Genesis 6, uh, the same idea about the flood. It repented God that he had made man. That there was regret, that there was sorrow over it, that it was experienced in some way by God. Uh, if you will, uh, you don't have to turn there. I want to read a small portion out of the book of Joel. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Joel uh, 2, 13 and 14. And I'm going to have to get my eyes checked because i got to squint a little bit. It says, And rend your heart and let your garments, and not your garments, turn unto the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repents Him of the evil. Who knows if He will return and repent and leave a blessing behind Him? Here, I want to offer you something about God that is very important. God presents himself in the scriptures as one who relents. What is that? What, what do you think of that? He is a God who will relent. And there's a reason we should seek mercy from this God. Because who knows if he will repent, if he will turn, if he will have mercy. Amen? That's, that, 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 there is no discouragement when we talk about things like predestination and election. That is not a discouragement, should not be a discouragement from anyone seeking the mercy of God. Because God has chosen to present Himself in such a way that we can seek His mercy, that we can seek His grace, and He may forgive, He may have mercy, He may save, even despite the fact that He has pronounced His judgments over us. Is that not a good... I, I like how Spurgeon said it, there is... If there is a multitude saved that no man can number, why can't you be one of them? There's no reason why you can't. Because he presents himself in the Bible as the God who relents. We don't under... All right, we read stuff like, God is not a man that he should repent. And yet we're asked, we're told that we can pray and he may turn to us. 
He may have mercy upon us. He may do those things. There is something wonderful here about our changing relationship with an unchanging God that is being spoken of here. That if, that this immutable, eternal God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever has told us that we can relate to Him, we can call upon Him, and we may have, He may give us the things that we need and desire and the help that we seek. We have a God that has willingly came down to relate with us and relent with us in a real and meaningful way. Now, we're not yet got to the point where we're trying to talk about these things, but He is the God of mercy. When we're talking about a God of mercy, we're talking about that very idea, a relenting God. All right, so we've got to understand this relationship. So... The scriptures present us time and time again with these ideas. He is the Lord God. He is the Lord God that relents. Um, we think of the, the if we think of um, Abraham, Abraham there saw the Lord, sat down with, ate, ate with the Lord. The Lord revealed to him his judgment that was going to come upon Sodom. And what did Abraham do? Abraham began to plead with him. Now, ultimately, the pleading of Abraham never reached the point of conditions in which God would save. But consider Abraham's plea. Will you save if there are 50 righteous? Will you save if there's 40 righteous? And God says, I will. Will you save if there's 20? If there's 10? And he says, I will. And then, as a prosecuting attorney, he goes down and shows that there was not even ten. But we see in that very aspect how God was willing, showed willingness to relent. And I think this is a very important part of how we understand our God. We can almost think of this, and John Frame here says, we can almost think of this as an attribute of God in and of itself. A relenting God. And that, that has to do with our experience with our God in time. You and I will never experience God eternally. <laughs> I mean, we will forever be with Him, but we were not going to experience anything outside of this. We're going, we're going to have our limitations, and He's going to make Himself known to us in our limitations. Um, now, there are, we have to understand that there's going to be things in the Scriptures as we're looking at this that are going to be helpful for us to take in mind. For instance, there are some times where God reveals His decrees, and those are unchanging. For instance... God decreed to Jeremiah that he will judge his people and they will not escape judgment. And so much so that in Jeremiah 18 and other places, he says, don't even pray for this people, for I will not hear. What was he doing? He was 
declaring His decreative will, His decree. And we talk about His decrees don't change. Whatsoever He has decreed will come to pass. All right, so that's very much different than Jeremiah 18 where he talks about the potter. Where he talked about him relenting of the good that he has promised or is intended to do. Why? Because those are conditionals. Now, for instance, let's let's talk about Jonah. We talked about Jonah before. Jonah went to Nineveh. Why did he go to Nineveh? He preached to him. What was he going to preach? Judgment, all right? He's, he came preaching all covered, all probably white and covered with a, a seaweed and everything else. And he says what? Yet 40 days and the Lord will destroy this place. All right, so what happened? They repented. They had a changing relationship. They were changing. They were changing their mind. Uh, they, and, what, and what did they say? Jonah 3.9, the king himself. Who knows if the Lord will relent and turn from his anger and we perish not. See, there were times where God is, like he did with Jeremiah, was declaring his decree. This people will be judged. There are no conditions set. Don't pray for them. This shall be. And then there are times where God reveals his, not his decree, but his precept. His preceptive will. Remember what his precept is. That's where he is declaring he was, he's declaring that he's declaring his commands and asking for a response. And like it was with those Ninevites, they had opportunity to respond. That very first word is yet 40 days, unless that's the idea, the unspoken condition in the preaching of Jonah. This is going, you're going to be judged in 40 days. Well, if that's so, then why is you there preaching? <laughs> even, even Jonah understood that in Jonah 4, where he says, I knew you were merciful. And the very fact that I was here to preach, therefore I fled. I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to give them a, the conditional judgment that they might repent and turn. So... There we have kind of this idea laid out. Not all prophecies are conditional. Amen? <laughs> Some prophecies are very direct. Everything, for instance, that God said about Jesus Christ was decrees in which were going to be met. There was no conditionality for it. And for instance, let's, if we talk about Saul, let's talk about, go back and talk about King Saul for a second. 
We talked about God repenting of making him king. Why? Because there were decrees. But, or there, were, there was a conditionality, not decrees, a conditionality of his kingship based upon his obedience. But then there was prophecies that Samuel gave to give signs that he was going to be made king that were not conditional. He says, well, you're going to meet two people. They're going to tell you that your father did this. Then you're going to meet some people singing. And then you're going to meet, meet a bunch of prophets. And then you're going to begin prophesying. And all those things happened. No conditions to them. Jeremiah, again, don't pray for this people. Why? Because the decree is made. The entirety of the kingdom of Christ. I have declared a decree. John, uh, Psalm 2. And it will be. So, God has laid these things out. Now, before we get, in, get into this, does this make sense? Who's the one changing? Us. Who's the one that changed? The Ninevites. Who's the one that changed? It was Saul. And, the, and, in, and in their changing, before the unchanging God, they came into differing relationships with that God. But God in time does present himself as a merciful God. And there's reason that we can seek him. He is, according to the scriptures, the God in our experience that relents. And who knows if he will have mercy so we should seek him. So the question is begged. How is God then unchanging? How do we understand this according to the scriptures? Because this is scriptural. God does not change. How do we understand it? Well, philosophers have tried to wrestle with this. And they said exactly what you and I have just said. That a change has taken place, but it's a change in us and not in a change in God. But they, they will use certain languages. That they talk, uh, the philosophers will talk about Cambridge changes. Cambridge changes. For instance, uh, um, let, me, let me think of a good example here. There was a point where Jenny was taller than Colton. <laughs> all right long time ago all right she is not taller than colton now now has her height changed since she's had colton as a child no she's roughly the same height what's changed she's changed all right so that's considered what they would call a cambridge change all right, so the change is not in God. The change is in God's subject. Um, but I don't think that that's necessarily scriptural because I don't think that always captures this, him being a merciful God, him changing us, him in his relationship. So it's more than just, August 25th, I was lost, and then August 26th, I was saved. August 26th, um, uh, God, God was not believed in. August 25th, God was not believed in by me. 
in August 26th, he was believed in by me. So I don't think this is necessarily completely the language that we want to use. Uh, what we need to do is we need to go back and we need to talk about what this actually means and what are the parameters that the scriptures speak about God regarding his unchangingness, unchangeableness. So that's what we want to do, and I want to give you four things, and then I'm going to quit. So the problem with what I'm saying, and I think John Frame's got this right, I think just simply saying, talking about Cambridge changes, no change in God, just a change in us, uh, I don't think it's edifying. And I don't think it encourages people to seek God, that he might be found of them if they seek him with all their heart, that he might be merciful if they go to him. I don't think, I don't think that Cambridge changes necessarily capture that idea. So what do we mean? What does this unchangeable nature mean? I want to give you four things. Let me erase here so I've got a little bit of room so I can write these four things about this, and I'll write it in orange. Number one, when we say that God is unchanging, His essential attributes don't change. God's nature does ne never changes. And that's so with the Incarnation. You're going to find these arguments from people who want to deny the deity of Christ, and these arguments go like this. If you believe that Jesus is God, then you believe God changes because God became man. Well, no, God never ceased to be God when he became man. He only, this relational God added a new relationship, added a new nature to himself that, that he related with. That is not a change because he's already a relational God. But when we speak of his unchanging nature, we speak of that idea that God in his nature does not change. What does that mean? Well, Hebrews 13, 8, I made allusions to this already. It just means that he is always the same God. We read that in Psalm 102, thou art the same. Generations have passed. The whole universe is decaying and one day will come to its end, but you are the same. And then Hebrews 13, 8 applies the same idea to Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's an unchanging God in His attributes. The Son of God was still all-powerful when He incarnated. The Son of God was still all-knowing when He incarnated. When the Son of God was still God when He took upon flesh upon Himself. He, God, did not change. His attributes do not change. And He has an unchanging relationship uh, with all who believe upon Him. Um, so, this, when we talk about immutability in this sense, we talk about it, this is a difference between a creature and a creator. The, cre the creator and the creature. The creator does not change. 
the creatures do. Um, he remains the same. For, and as I said before, he does not, he's not getting stronger. Uh, the Hegelian dialectic, uh, the Hegel, the philosopher, talked about a God that is processing, progressing. That's where we get progressive ideology at, is uh, rooted in that very philosophy of Hegel. But that's not the God of the Scriptures. He's the same. The same God that created is the same God that rules today and is the same God that will rule in the end of time. He's not getting smarter. He's not getting more aware. He's not, he's not the God of Joseph Smith and Mormonism. Amen? He's not, he did not become God. He's always been and always will be. Or as the, uh, the language of Revelation is, He is the God that was and is and will be. So that is what we mean. But that's not all we mean. He does not change. His decrees are unchanging. We already kind of alluded to this. What God said will be, will be. Turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of His heart to all generations. The counsel of the Lord. We see that same language in Ephesians chapter 1. The counsel of His own will. By that He has predetermined, He is predestined, He has done these things. He has made decrees in eternity past, he has, and He has decreed that those things will be, and those things will be. And those won't change. It wasn't possible that the Christ would be born in Egypt. Where must Christ be born? Bethlehem. All right, things of that nature. There's things that God whiz, does not change His decrees. All right, so we're, we're winding up here. So His decrees don't change. He has governed all things by His story. He has written His eternal creed, decrees, and He governs the entirety of the history of man according to His decrees. What else does it mean? It means that He does not change in His covenant faithfulness. Often you'll find a word in the Old Testament called loving kindness, according to His loving kindness. That's that word, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word is hesed, hesed. That just means His covenant faithfulness, His covenant love, and it does not change. Go to Malachi chapter 3. You all know this one, but let's go ahead and look at the context of Malachi. If you find Matthew, you just go back a couple pages and you're in Malachi. All right. So uh, it's easy to find Malachi, but Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, For I am the Lord... I change not, therefore, on that basis, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. All right? That's the full context. 
What is he saying here? I'm the Lord, I don't change, therefore you can count on my covenant being true. And all my promises being true. It's not based upon your obedience. It's not based upon uh, uh, your changeableness or, or fickleness or anything else. My promises will be kept. Micah chapter 7, 19 and 20, where he talks about... Uh, well, let's go there. Just a few pages before... Micah, uh, right after Jonah, Micah chapter 7, Micah 7 and verse 19, Micah 7, 19, He will turn again, he will, he will have compassion upon us, He will subdue our iniquities, and Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth of Jacob and the mercy to Abraham which thou hast sworn unto our fathers. Do you not see how wonderful the unchangeableness of God is to us because He has promised to save all that come to Christ? And I, wanna, I want, to, I want to, to, for us to draw this comfort out of this again. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's a covenant that I have entered in with Christ, and you have entered in with Christ, and that covenant will not be broken, not because we're good, but because He's unchanging, and He will not break His covenant. Uh, some people will balk at this and say, wait, 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 wait. Does he not say that he has made the old covenant old? He has done away with the old covenant. No, that's a misreading of the scriptures. What did Christ say? He says he's fulfilled his covenant. He's kept his word. Every jot and tittle of it. I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't break the old covenant. He fulfilled the old covenant. And he's made a new covenant with you and me and with the house of Israel that he will put his law in our hearts. He will be our God. We will be his people. And we rest in his, un, his, his uh, enduring faithfulness. God, in fact, we can almost sometimes use the word immutable as faithful. That's part of its meaning to us. Uh, Hebrews 6, I want to hurry, and I, I, I'm keeping you all long. I'm sorry. Uh, Hebrews 6, uh, we have, have a, a, a small reading here, starting in verse 17. Hebrews 6, Wherein God willing abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it with an oath. And it said just a couple verses earlier, it's impossible for God to lie. Or you see, he confirmed it with that by two, no, it says right here, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation to have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast. Why is it sure and steadfast? Because he doesn't change. 
He doesn't lie. He will keep his covenant. Keeping covenant with thousands, it says in the law. And then lastly, he does not change in the truth of his revelation. That does not change. What he has said is, is. What he has declared to be true is true and does not become false and is not falsified. Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. Verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? 41.4 Who has wrought and done it calling the generations from the beginning I the Lord the first and with the last I am He. What He has declared is His words don't become void ever. His ancient words remain infallible. You and I still today have an infallible source of authority in God because the truths of the scriptures have not been falsified at any point in time, and nor will they ever be. They shall endure always and shall not fail. I think this captures what we mean by immutable. Without without giving up or minimalizing the idea that God does relate to us, God is merciful to us. We can seek God and God will relent for us because He is the merciful and unchanging God who keeps covenant, who gives His loving kindness to us based upon His covenant. I hope uh, this made sense. Lord over time, the unchanging God of all time. Any questions, complaints, or grievances? I know when we're talking about eternality... (laughs) We're talking about a hard subject, um, something that's hard for us to wrap our mind around. Our God's eternal. Our God doesn't change. He's the same. All right, any questions? Hey, Grace. How are you? Hey, <laughs> just saying hey. All right, no complaints or grievances either, so we'll stop there in about 10 minutes. We'll pick up on this in the second hour. I hope you got something from this.